0: That's what they found, the Gottmans. They found that actually your methods around conflict, your methods around criticism, defensiveness, um, whether you shut down and kind of retreat in the middle of an argument, whether you, you know, kind of blow up, lose your temper, start calling names in an argument, like it's the way you negotiate. That actually is the stronger determinant of long-term relationship success than compatibility or um, uh, novelty and adventure and, you know, connection over various hobbies. Like, It's
1: pretty interesting. Boom, boom, boom. Guess who is in my waiting room? Never done that before, but what the heck. (laughs) Kick those tires and start that extremely fake fire because gas prices, prohibitive as they are, have forced us into virtual consultations, even with friends of friends, including my dear friend, Matthias Barker, renowned Christian psychotherapist, which I love that term, we're going to get into psychotherapists and why that term is different than others. Uh, he has grown to incredible he is Instagramist, if I can actually make that a word. Wow. Um, he has been on uh, TV, actually, uh, is actually someone who's been consulted <laughs> by leading authorities, uh, also just a genuinely great human being a rare trifecta that you find in a human being. He has rocketed up the top of the TikTok and Instagram charts, if that's such a thing. Wow. And now he is basically, uh, he, he and I are essentially identical Aside from he's more well read and has 5,987,000 more (laughs) listeners and followers than I do, please welcome to the virtual campfire, my dear friend, Matthias J.
0: Barker. Such a warm welcome. I feel so flattered. And I'm so excited to meet this Matthias Barker you're talking of. This is great.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's sort of a, Yeah, I guess. So Matthias also struggles with multiple personality. So he has very famous <laughs> ones. So um, no, but we shouldn't joke about that is a serious thing. Uh, mm. we have limited time today, because let's face it, uh, the world is full of chaos. And Matthias and I have to go deal with it. However, in big updates in Matthias's life, um, there is you have a new client that you brought into the house since we last talked.
0: Yes, the little the little one. um, My wife is pregnant. Uh, Not not a client. I think my children, (laughs) my children
1: will decry having a therapist as a father um that's but, true and you don't make money off them they will actually drain you yeah uh, that's, financially that's true. so there's more of a yeah more of a charity you, you brought in a cause <laughs> so. yeah hopefully they don't feel like the client but um yeah we have a little one coming in
0: august little boy it's our it's our second so we're pretty we're pretty stoked life is good right now oh i time.
1: was saying last time we last time we met on kind of christian for you listeners out there uh-huh. who enjoy my theological waxing on our other podcast uh you had not welcomed the new addition to your house yet so how is fatherhood yeah just celebrated a year Uh, two days ago. Amazing. How about that? I know
0: time flies, huh? It's been a long time. Yeah. So our first, um, little girl, her name is Ada. Um, she just celebrated a year old, um, two days ago. And we had a big, um, uh, assortment of charcuterie plates that she did not partake in balloons. (laughs) And, and uh, it's so funny throwing a birthday party for a a one-year-old is so much more about the adults, I guess, than, than the child, aside from them getting to eat the cake at the end, but it was pretty
1: fun. We had a good time with it. There's yeah. actually, there's a Seinfeld bit on that where he says your first birthday and your last birthday are actually the same. You're sort of not really present. You don't really know what's going on. They put cake in front of you. They invite a bunch of people, which you don't recognize. And they say, these are your friends. Welcome <laughs> them to your birthday party. So that's, awesome. I like, that's,
0: that's really I think Encap encapsulates it well. Yeah, but fatherhood's so, amazing. So I mean, get, what's yeah, the, is what great. is the
1: take home? What what are you surprised about with fatherhood? And um, you know, what do you if there's such a thing is uh, maybe not miss is the is the right word, but what do you appreciate more now that you have a child?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think I got the advice early on from a good mentor that just said that hey you know, I I called the mentor asking, I was like, what's your advice on fatherhood? And he's like, you don't need to be worrying about that for the first couple of years. Just don't even think about it. What you need to worry about is making sure your wife enjoys being a mom. Yeah. For the first like couple of years, you're just focused on making sure your wife enjoys, you know, being a mom and you're not imparting all these philosophical lessons. You're not trying to instantiate all these habits and Hmm. you're not doing Bible studies and having him read Homer and Aristotle. You're just, that's your tune. You're just, uh, changing diapers and making sure that baby's doing okay and living and not getting a diaper rash. And you know, like, it's uh it's pretty mundane, glorious stuff. And, uh, and so really the primary focus, like if you're thinking about like, okay, what kind of family do I want to build? What kind of habits do I want to build? Like, what is the actual, like um, the qualities of family life has a lot more to do with your spouse actually in that first couple of years, because um, in terms of your child, it's not too, it's not too deep and philosophical, which, which I thought was, it's like self-evident advice, but once it hits you, it's like, Oh, it really does help you kind of prioritize stuff. So when, when baby got here, I was just really focused on Paige, and really making sure she was having a good time. So that, and that, uh, that was a great choice. I think that really, you would advise other
1: future parents for those (laughs) with little ones on the way, you would say this advice has proven true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I I think it's been good. So it's, um, I think even with second, you know babe coming into play it's it's kind of same strategy i'm not again edda is not really even talking she has a couple words she has like she can say hot which is kind of funny um when there's like a hot like uh, cup like every every morning we drink coffee and she's always reaching for the coffee and we're like no 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 hot hot and so now
1: now when we have coffee she'll look over and be like oh hot i'm like yeah yeah hot so she and, likes uh, the song hot hot and for our listeners so she's actually not downing coffee um you know it's actually funny my uh when i was a little child uh, you know a few years ago my parents gave me coffee what they called coffee and it was like four fifths milk and like a few drops of coffee just to give it a sort of a latte flavor and it was called hot and yeah that's what it was because i would just say that and i had a little plastic cup and mm-hmm. you know, you put enough cream and sugar in anything it's marvelous um, oh, so yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's and then what do you miss, uh, if anything, or what do you appreciate more now that you're in the sleepless, uh, and you know, parental, <laughs> you know, different side of the, of life. Do you, uh, do you have an appreciation for things from the other seasons? Yeah,
0: well, I don't know. I think I'm in a uniquely fortunate spot where Paige and I were married for almost nine years before we had kids. And so, wow. um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, we got married real young. She was 19. I was 20. And, and so we, we had a lot of time just like go out to eat and go to movies and enjoy, I don't know, like being just uh, childless and all the fun. You so know, you, you couldn't legally
1: drink all. at your wedding?
0: <clears throat> nope. But I drank on our honeymoon in Mexico because 18 is the law there. <laughs> so that was actually my first drink was, it, uh, was uh, in Mexico. And I got like a double of some Jack and tried to drink whiskey for the first time. And it was gross and did not like it. And then I just ate pina coladas for the rest of the time. So, Ooh. all right, well, there you go. That was, that was my 19 year old experience.
1: I'm curious, you know, people all the time, it's funny. I just saw a post on this on Instagram, which is perhaps eerily prophetic here. When you get married that young, did everyone around you say, what are you doing? You're too young. Uh, I am fascinated with this as, yeah. as, we get into this sort of like what constitutes an adult now, um, we talked, I think last time <laughs> I, I'd read Ben Sass's book, uh, the vanishing American adult, and it mm. unfortunately hit way closer to home than I would have liked uh because it's interesting how they actually he said and I, I think I may be paraphrasing this hopefully correctly is that um they've actually moved the definition of what is considered um adulthood uh back further. So it's actually into the thirties 'cause I'm like, I'm now thirty-six and I feel just as immature as I was a long time ago, albeit with more financial means to express that immaturity. Yeah, yeah. But do you do, do people are like, hey, when you get married that young, it seems so unfathomable to me. Like you have like I think about myself at twenty and I'm like Dear God, no, like, but mm-hmm. then I go, most of history, you got married at what? 16, 17, you know? So what was your well, life, ex-
0: life expectancy? was only, you know, to, into your forties for a majority of human history.
1: So did you mature quicker or did you just, you know,
0: die early? <laughs> that's quote, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like if, if a uh, childhood ends in your thirties, then I guess just all of life is, is majority childhood. I don't know. That's That'd well, be that, that's
1: been borne out by a lot of things we've seen out there, but did people tell you too young? <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and and in some ways they were right, but like uh, most of the people that we knew, our friends who kind of followed suit and got married, kind of right after freshman year of college, in that nineteen twenty world, most of them are divorced now. Not all, but most of them are. Really? And and I mean, it makes sense. It's like you know, you don't really know who you are at age nineteen or twenty, and the process of change that you're going through from ages like nineteen to twenty three is just so drastic. Like you're likely going to have, if not an entirely different worldview, um, very, very different sorts of values and very different sorts of hobbies. And, you know, you, so you could think of like the trellis that you build your relationship on when you're 19, the, the things that are important to you, the things that you do, the music you listen to, all those kinds of things, that trellis is getting completely swapped out and changed and altered, um, you know, over the course of your early 20s to where you're probably a very different kind of person when you're 25. So the you know, if you were being cynical, you could just say, well, you know, you better hope that that you like the person that they turned into, um, at age 25, because that's who you're kind of, you know, hitched up to. I don't think it's that cut and dry. I think that Paige and I both really had sturdy values in our faith and, and, um, we grew up in a pretty similar, uh, I don't know, childhood experience growing up in youth group and growing up with parents who hold really similar values. And, and, uh, so a lot of those core things that really animate, us uh, were in place and stayed in place, you know, kind of throughout our early adulthood. So that helped. And then, I mean, on a personality spectrum, we're, we're pretty similar in a lot of categories. And, and even as hobbies have changed, and styles have changed, and um, our jobs look different, you know, kind of moving through everything, we, we stayed pretty close, you know, and I think, uh, you know, the Gottman's did interesting research on this. Oh, love Gottman. Yeah, so they they looked at, okay, what's the better predictor of of um, maybe marriage stability is it, you know the the habits that someone has at the beginning of a relationship or like the deteriorating effects of time because you could theorize that like eventually you're going to get bored of each other eventually you know you're just going to kind of turn into these different people like i was saying that cynical view of just like you're going to have different hobbies potentially different values you know later on in life than you did early on so is that is that the heavier more you know determinate variable or are there things actually just even in your interactions early on that that are a heavier var- variable and that's what they found the Gottman's they found that actually your methods around conflict your methods around criticism defensiveness um, whether you shut down and kind of retreat in the middle of an argument whether you you know kind of blow up lose your temper start calling names in an argument like it's the way you negotiate that actually is the stronger determinant of long-term relationship success than compatibility or um uh novelty and adventure and you know connection over various hobbies like it's pretty interesting
1: so as a successful sales executive I should have success in marriage um, be like yeah look you're me. just very persuasive here's the deal all right have i got an option for you right here's what What do you doing for dinner tonight right oh man have mm. i got several choices for you um so your faith grounded you two together but actually this is one of the questions we got from um our our listeners here was um yeah how do you, you know what is your if you boil it down what do you feel has made uh marriage work for you and mm. it sounds like a strong faith and commitment to that has helped you weathered those storms, um, and the changes that would come because you're a different person today than you were at 20, right? I mean, have you, would you say you've changed substantially? Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of us are the same and different in in various ways, but, but yeah, I think the things that kept us grounded faith is one it's, it's also. Maybe one to tack on top of that would be that I think Paige and I have really kept at the center of our relationship that we're, we believe each other. When we say that we're on the same team, like when you're arguing over something, when you have a disagreement, even when there's a moment of betrayal or hurt, there's the temptation to kind of concede that, Hey, you and I are on different teams and we're fighting for different things. And so I need to kind of protect what's mine. I need to protect me. I need to get the blame off of me and onto you. You know, there's a, uh, there's kind of a point keeping system like, and that's, that's protective. That makes sense. It's not bad to do that. It's, it's, it's like a normal response, but, but towards the end of long-term, relational closeness it can complicate things it can make things more complex because if you kind of go into an argument with a preservative um protective state of mind and you go in negotiating almost on the precondition that only one of us can win here either i can get my thing or you can get your thing and i gotta fight for my thing then you're going to go in way more accusational you're going to go in with a lot more criticism you're going to go in with a lot more um even just the energy of just some heat just some anger some coldness that that's going to disrupt your ability to have like a good negotiation or a good conversation on something but if you go in instead with that warmth of oh you and I are on the same team we're actually trying to get to to the same goal here we have the same dream around what our lives could look like then that changes the whole tinge of the conversation so for example like just to, that's kind of abstract, for example, it would be like, you know, let's say that I'm, um, you know, I'm running home late from work consistently. And let's say that I'm like 30, 40 minutes late from work. Cause I'm just sitting around on my phone. I'm on TikTok. I'm just kind of like moseying around. Maybe I grab a coffee on my way home or something. And then, um, you know, Paige is maybe frustrated and says like, Hey, I'm here alone with the baby. Like, you know, there's a lot of different ways that arguments could do- go down. You know, if she went in, like, essentially he's being selfish. He doesn't care about me and my time. He just thinks that I'm just over here. It's like, you know, glorified childcare where he can kind of go around and do whatever he wants with his life and then pop in when he feels like it. You know, if that was really the underlying belief, then that's going to set the tone for the conversation. And she could come in, you know, really hot and just say like, hey, Matthias, like, like, oh, finally decided to show up. Like, welcome home. Yeah, you want me to cook you dinner too? Like, there's, a, <laughs> there's an underlying- Great debate, home <laughs> Yeah, like there's an underlying anger and criticism that's it's gonna make it near impossible for us to actually negotiate. If anything, I'm just gonna try to appease her just to get her to stop being so angry or stop yelling at me. And so then I'm just gonna, like her best case scenario, if, if she came at it from that point of view would be um, <clears throat> just to, for me to appease her. But instead, if we kind of acknowledge, you no, know, we have the same goal here. Like my guess <clears throat> is that if Matthias knew how tired I was and and really kind of the laborious nature of caring after like a one year old all day long, and and that I haven't been able to go to the bathroom by myself all day, and that I haven't even gotten a shower in yet today, or that I am trying to cook and watch her, but she didn't take her nap, and so it's been really like if he, if he knew the context of what I'm actually dealing with, then he would probably be moved and and want me to flourish too. Like, and, and so there's almost this underlying assumption that like, oh, like he cares about me, he loves me. And if he really understood, then then he would value and we'd actually probably reach a similar conclusion. And so coming to me like, hey, like, um, hey, just want to let you know about kind of what my day has been like, this has been really hard, it would be so helpful, you know, for you to come home 30 minutes earlier, an hour earlier, so that I can get dinner started so that I can I don't know, just even get a little bit of time for myself. Cause I just feel so exhausted. And when you're home late, it's like, I feel really fatigued and really tired. And, mm. and I would feel so supportive, so supported if, you know, we agreed upon the time when you would be home. So I know when to expect you. So I, as I'm kind of managing the household, like, I know that I know
1: when you're going to be home, it's going to yeah. set a totally different tone. For sure. The irony of this example is that you have had phenomenal success on TikTok through consistency. And so, uh, if you were 30 minutes late and you were posting on TikTok, you could, how am I speaking? I'm making a living here. I gotta be on TikTok. I don't want to sit there and swipe right on dancing pictures all day, but I'm doing it, you know? So there's a, I, I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on TikTok. Also shouldn't have that coffee later in the day could keep you up all night but you're going to be up all night with a kid anyway but no that's interesting i mean it's, it's interesting. so you're talking conflict resolution actually i read i forget if it was gary it was gary Some one of the two big christian authors on uh it was called the sacred search and it was on finding um a mate but he had four criteria that he said you need to rate someone you're with you need to actually be as critical as you can be like if you're considering them for you know long term mm-hmm. yeah. a long-term right. merger you know uh that's one, there are four categories. And if they don't score a 36, basically I will scale of one to 10. If you don't get a nines on average across the board, you need to like, this is not a fit. And the, one of the big ones, a like conflict resolution, he said, the best couples will fight 20% of the time. Like that's the, that's the gold standard you can go for is six days of the week. You'll be fine. Uh, but there will be, you know, just arguments yeah. and how you are able to communicate and handle those is a huge determinant of your. Like lifetime success. So, uh, I love that Will Ferrell quote about, if you want to find out who someone is, just put them in front of slow internet for uh, an hour and see what happens. Uh, that's so. funny, yeah, so
0: that's, that's actually a great one. Yeah, no, I, um, I think, I think that's a huge value being able to see how someone responds to conflict and feeling like, okay, we can negotiate, we can repair, even when there is a rupture, even when there is something bad that happens, we can, you know, that's not turned into a grudge. Yeah. that's not turned into a resentment that's not leveraged later on to manipulate me to do things that's why do you, um why yeah. do you
1: think we because so it's funny I, I love what you're saying about conflict resolution and i actually didn't even plan on getting into this but you know obviously asking for a friend because i'd never struggle with this um <laughs> but is it why do you think humans just immediately go to the dark side when it comes like when we have conflicts it's always like you know what Matthias is out to get me I knew it all along he never liked me it was like you know you always like have mm-hmm. this conspirator and then you get there and it's like sorry I'm late like traffic was terrible and I stopped to get you some flowers you know yeah uh, yeah yeah and it's like oh like it's so funny I I just have this tendency always to be like just assume like we're it's and I find this in a lot of conflict that either I have and friends have had where it's like we tend to assume in conflict the other person is just like totally against us and out to get us and it doesn't even logically make sense. Like, Mm. I'm thinking about your example with your wife, like, you both have the same, we want our kid to flourish. We want peace in our household. We both want dinner. We both like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we both want rest like we are if you literally line up our Maslowian hierarchy of needs, they're Mm -hmm. almost all the same. Right. And so it's interesting that we but we default to, you know, the worst case scenario.
0: Totally. Well, and that's so hard to keep in the front of our mind. Our incentives are aligned, and and if you go into the argument, assuming that they're not,
1: you'll likely end the argument as if they're not. It's
0: um, it's a powerful thing.
1: Do you think that's just the fallen nature of humanity? I mean, is it just our? Is it just our? Yeah, I mean, I think
0: in part. I mean, there's a few things. It's probably complex. One one of them might be that um, there's a pattern of behavior that even though I've told you, hey, it's really tiring. Hey, I'm exhausted. I would be great if you're home on time, you still don't show up on time and not even for good reasons, but it's just because you're on TikTok. So there's experiences that confirm that you're just being selfish or distracted. And so then what we do is we fear that, you know, before we have really even any evidence before we know one way or the other, why someone's late, we just assume that it's for the bad reasons that we've seen in the past, right? So it's complex. It's not just a matter of us being cynical. Sometimes it's us pulling off of past times when our partners let us down. That's one of them. Another one might be that we're just generally protective. Like sometimes things happen that like mm. kind of ring through a past series yeah. of wounds, like a past constellation of events in our past that, um, yeah. that, uh, that made us feel vulnerable or unsafe or unprotected. Yeah. Like, no. I mean, like a classic example could be, you know, feeling unsafe um, you know, in a, in a relationship with someone because we had a parent that was really inconsistent, mm. you know? So when our partner does something that reminds us of dad or reminds us of mom, then we react, not just with the intensity of that isolated circumstance, but with the intensity of all the things that we're mad at, at our mom about all the things we're mad about at our dad about mm. um, and our partner. So I, I think, Yeah, fallen. One in one sense, you could say it's fallenness, but it's more specific than that. There's a very specific sense in which it's fallen. Maybe something like that.
1: Sometimes people challenge me and they say, "I don't think humans are fallen by nature." And I was like, "If you, if you just have a three-year-old unparented and see what happens, um, it is amazing. They know how to manipulate and lie and push and take things. It's just, it's amazing. Like, don't need to work on those values at all. They're just." Pre-factory settings, you know, have to get all the other stuff out of it. Uh, well, we got into Gottman way early expected. So I figured what the heck, why not jump in on this? So you mentioned conflict resolution and also, con- and Gottman's research on what would lead to successful relationships. I am curious is, does Gottman have any, or is there in the broader body of literature, is there evidence for, um, restraint and deferred gratification when it comes to, uh, uh, sexual behavior leading to long-term Healthier outcomes in relationships, and I'm asking that for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, in sort of Judeo-Christian ethics, there's a uh, priority placed on deferring uh, sexual intimacy until uh, marriage. And I'm curious if that's actually backed up by um, research to any degree. Like, the longer you wait, you know, uh, is that better for relationship, or is that also that could be because mature people can defer gratification in any area, and that might be predictive of better outcomes and stuff, but have you seen anything like that? Or have you, Hmm. um, you know, come across anything like that? Well,
0: I, I think, you know, the first thing that came to mind was, um, some of the literature that, you know, was brought up on masturbation and, and specifically there were some questions, you know, kind of in the literature on that, where it's like, Hey, you have two people with different libidos, um, you know, is, is the best route to take, you know, like Mm -hmm. if we're looking at different options. Um that one should just simply repress their um, erotic desires and just have sex with their partner when the partner is, you know um wanting to have sex. so let's say you have like you know husband wife and and you know the husband wants to have sex once a month and the wife wants to have sex two, three times a week you know, so should the wife then like hold off and just wait for the once a month for her husband hmm. or um, Or could masturbation be something that's like supplementary? So in the other nine instances that the husband didn't want to have sex, like did, is it okay? And does it lead to marital satisfaction for the wife to then supplement with masturbation? You know, and so there's, there's been studies along those lines. And really the, the data has, was shown that it's it's almost neutral. It has almost no effect whether someone chooses to wait and have sex with their partner when their partner wants to, or whether they masturbate in the meantime. Um, you know, it was, it was actually shown that if that masturbation was in connection to pornography, that it had a negative effect that that
1: led to lower, um, relational satisfaction. Okay. I want to come back to it because you mentioned the P word there. We obviously the M word, anyone can say, it, but the P pornography, um, YouTube algorithm just suppressed us is, um, now are Sorry. these, are these, uh, <laughs> yeah. research is this research for currently married couples? Or I I'm, I'm also curious if like, yeah. if, if deferring sexual behavior until marriage, Right, like, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I was did that is that also is that something that has also been looked at? To be honest, I haven't I haven't read that research. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm just I'm being curious because some people think you know the, the the secular critics might say, well, it's just sort of an antiquated ethic, but I thought I had read somewhere and I thought it was Gottman that um the ability to defer um that uh sexual gratification could actually lead to better outcomes in marriage. My first instinct on that though, um, aside from a, a a Christian perspective would be well mature. I mean, that's the test of maturity in all humans, right. Is the ability to delay gratification um, and mm. kind of put that head, but um, yeah, can- I might not put it at the feet of delayed gratification. Cause I, what I was going to loop around to
0: is with the Gottman's when, when they kind of approach this around different libidos within marriage, um, differenting desires of how often we have sex. It was mm-hmm. the thing that led to the satisfaction in the relationship was less how similar the sex drives were or you know who had the higher or lower it was more the communication around sexual connection and it was do we know how to negotiate and that actually ties back around to what we were saying it's like do i believe that you actually care about me and want the same thing because i mean you could you could uh, assume uh, that hey my partner is just essentially doesn't care about me they don't care about physical connection they they would rather you know, they just think of me as a roommate, like you can go in with all of these hypotheses, or you could go in being like, I mean, they probably understand that I'm a sexual being that that has a different drive than them. But if if they could have their way that um, I guess they would want me to feel satisfied and happy. Like Mm -hmm. if they could just pick, I'm sure if it was the pick between me being miserable and, (laughs) and, you know, just sitting here all anxious and, you know, like, and then frustrated or, you know, me feeling connected and warmly attached to them that they would prefer, the attachment, And so then a conversation looks something like a negotiation of, okay, I don't want to have sex several times a week, or I do want to have sex every single day, or something, let's find something that we're both mutually content with. And then, and this is really important, we both consensually agree that that's the method that we're going to take. So whether that's, um, we're going to have sex once a month, but then I'm going to masturbate intermittently, or um, we're going to have sex two or three times a month and I'm going to wait and I'm going to restrain my sexual activity purely to connecting with you. Um, You know, there's that, that negotiation could actually look really flexible. That wasn't the determining factor is what they found. It wasn't what they landed on. It's how they negotiated. That was the important part. And that comes back to these methods around criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, withdraw uh, contempt. Mm. It's like, do you know how to have a conversation about what's valuable to you and what matters to you? And then do you know how to communicate that with your partner in a way where you maintain good faith, where you maintain that we're probably after the same thing here, even though we're different people. And that was the factor. Um, some always comes that, back
1: to communication. huh?
0: Well, I mean, and there's a couple other things I was, I was going to add too. So the Gottman's also found that the people who had the happiest sex life made sex a priority. So there, there had to be an understanding that, that it mattered. And, and, uh, And that was actually protective um, against sex life declining or becoming less satisfying in times of life that um, typically a sex life kind of tanks, you know, so like around children, childbearing age or um, around illness or chronic pain, you know, life events that aren't really controllable. Like, I mean, I guess you can control whether you have kids or not, but normal seasons of life where, you know, once sex life takes a back seat. Do you have conversations with your partner around how do we, within this new context, um, express physical intimacy, sensual, sexual intimacy together? Um, the the styles of communication and the priority of that communication was protective in maintaining a good sex life. So I guess that doesn't really touch on premarital sex or that connection. I, I guess I haven't really looked into that, but I know that when it comes to having satisfying sex life, those are some things to think through.
1: Wow. No, that's fascinating. Man. You know, your stuff. That's, um, so make it a priority. That's, um, now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, you brought up uh, pornography, which I'm just I, I'm, I was gonna say I'm curious about that. Sure. <laughs> there's no proper context there. But Hey, man, uh, I don't
0: judge you for being curious about
1: pornography. Well, no, <laughs> I'm, I am it's funny, because I obviously, um, you know, I I'm curious as a, as a Christian psychotherapist. So if you divorce the moral arguments, um, from pornography, um, and just say, look, if we look at it this purely from what is available to us in scientific literature, what would, from your opinion and perspective, what is sort of the consensus, um, if there is on pornography in general, as in, I'm, I would say in context of mental health and human flourishing, uh, and maybe you want to throw in human relationships are part of flourishing. Um, I would love if there was a
0: consensus that would be, that would make it so simple. So (laughs) there isn't,
1: there's a lot of mixed science. (laughs) There's so much.
0: Yeah. There's so many mixed opinions. And I would say like, I'm not a Christian psychotherapist in the sense that I advertise myself as a psychotherapist who uses Christian modalities or Mm -hmm. Christian interventions. I'm a, I'm a Christian comma, and I'm a therapist. And so, you know, for my clients, um, I, I don't maybe impose like the moral dynamic. Right. I don't bring that into the room. And so really like when, if my, if my client, for example, like is, you know, viewing pornography, I, I don't bring that up unless they specifically voice mm-hmm. that they would like to stop, or maybe this is a problem in their marriage. And so they want to you know consider it. And so I take a pretty neutral view, you know, as a clinician, even though I'm privately as a Christian, I, I hold a moral perspective on pornography, not being, mm-hmm. you know, advantageous but you know you could think of in the psychological realm and the data and the science of it you have a few different perspectives you have perhaps like um like a postmodern perspective that really has taken like a sex positive and um you know sex positivity even through the lens of feminist modalities you know that that really look at the empowerment that pornography can bring um not just to the people that view it but for the women you know the sex workers that um perform it and so there's there's a lot of theory around how that is actually a liberating act and that it's something positive, not just for the people married or not who are viewing it, but for um, the existence of that as a type of media. So there's, there's that perspective. There's there's other perspectives that look at the efficacy of um, pornography as it relates to marital satisfaction. And if just generally outside of outside of more like theory, it just on a pragmatic basis, almost does it lead to marital satisfaction and the data on that is is. I, I think, and people would contest me here, but I think majority negative. Majority would say that it has a negative correlation to marital satisfaction, um, but neutral to negative. So not like a highly st- st- statistically significant jump, but either having no effect or a negative effect. Um, but that changes with women. So women who view pornography, there's um, there's been studies showing that that could have a positive. Um, I, I, I saw I that that size. was,
1: that was fascinating to me because I, I, same with you is that when I was going over the literature, it seems that like, uh, let's say three fourths of it was, this is not good for your marriage. This is, and, it, and for seemingly obvious reasons, right? You might be like, you could compare your partner to this. Uh, there's a sort of, you can, um, you might reality might seem a little tamer, uh, compared if you have on demand, you know, whatever you want. But I did see a few studies that showed actually, And again, these things are tough because you're going off reported satisfaction and subjective Mm -hmm. opinions of like, it's be impossible to like, how do you objectively prove what is a better marriage, Um, because even that would be a debate of what what metrics do you use, right. So I realize this is a very gray area, but it did say there were subjective. um, Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, there was a few studies that showed that uh, there was higher satisfaction for women in marriage who viewed pornography, which I was Mm -hmm. like, I was yeah. So in the interest of full, like, you know, intellectual honesty, I was like, Hey, this is actually not, um, cause there's someone who, you know, if you come at it from a, a Judeo Christian perspective, you're like, oh, this is bad, um, you might be tempted to like, kind of forget some of that science. But I was like, oh, this is actually interesting because the science doesn't always line up on this.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, even, I mean, even in those studies, it's not like the, un, like the universal consensus is that it's always a net positive for women who view pornography, but there's sure. been some studies that have shown it have a net positive effect. Um. Yeah. And then there's studies that show that pornography can have a positive effect on marriage. But if you look at the funding on those studies and there's, there's a lot of those, um, Hmm. a lot of the studies that are funded by the porn industry, uh, you know, getting in there and trying to create studies to be able to fall back on. Um, and that's of course a sweeping statement that I'll get criticism for, but, but that's that's true in a large percent of cases that, that the funding, um, there's incentives
1: behind how the studies are made. Well, it's any study, right? We could say that about pharma, we could say that about, uh, you know, the meat, egg, dairy, vegan. I mean, anyone's got a vested interest in, I mean, I'm pretty sure I could make a study say anything with the right amount of, uh, resources, you know? Yeah, but I wouldn't discount that there's studies out there that have followed all their
0: ethical mandates and have found that porn can have a positive effect. Well, I, I what we're you're... talking about is how a variable impacts a context. And so a context is going to include different sets of values and how people relate to each other sexually. And like you said, it's subjective. It's not like there's no um, you know, even philosophically, you and I might agree as Christians that it's an objective moral wrong. That doesn't mean that that that's how it functions anthropologically within society or psychologically within society. But,
1: oh, no, for sure. Yeah. That's actually one of the things that like, you know, cuz generally speaking, I find that many of these sort of biblical precepts or Christian precepts do tend to function anthropologically. Well, like being generous does lead to better social outcomes, and you don't do it because of that, but you just find like, oh yeah, if you Mm -hmm. live a life of quiet, if you're peaceful, patient, joy, kindful, joyful, kind, and uh, you (laughs) give generously, and you are have a perspective that this is sort of a fleeting life, and that there's more to come. I mean, there's just so many benefits. It, It does seem to. That's why I really appreciate Jordan Peterson's like uh, work as far as like mm-hmm. Christianity is sort of this utilitarian, like this does explain the human condition. Also the human condition outlined is like, Hey, we are, you know, creatures that are totally divine and special and amazing. And yet we really, we have a, a big factory flaw that we, uh, you know, we embroider. So I was like, that, that makes sense to me. But then you have these things where you're told, Hey, this is, this is not good or wrong. Um, Perhaps it's premarital sex or whatever, or pornography too. And you're like, and and you find studies that contradict it, and you're like, oh, it exposes this belief, I think, that automatically, if I read something's good or bad, it's gonna pan out for um, mm-hmm. this one, right? And that's just not, I guess you can make the case stealing, right? Stealing is a no-no. There are, I'm sure, cases where people steal and they have, you know, <laughs> better outcomes in a few areas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's the difference, and this is good because um,
0: a lot of psychological schools have narrowed in on this, and it's the difference, in, in something called that contextual behavior science, they call it the difference between process and content. And what that means is you could say, okay, as content, is is pornography bad or good um, as, a, as a piece of content? And you can give it a label as good or bad. Or you could say, okay, is the effect of pornography on this process good or bad? Because it looks at pornography as a variable or as an ingredient, you know, in a dish to use an analogy there. So like, um, you could look at an ingredient and say, is salt like good or bad? Um, is that a good <laughs> flavor or bad flavor? Or you can ask, okay, the proportion of salt in the dish of the soup, is it good or bad? And those are totally different questions because you're not just looking at something for its content, it's good or bad quality, but you're looking at it. What's the effect it's having on a context. Mm. And so in, in a, in a Christian marriage porn, isn't it, is, is going to have a negative effect of course, because all the other ingredients don't agree with the content of that, of of the salt, you know, for example, um, but in a context where there's a totally different sexual ethic or a different way of relating or something that's a lot more fluid, less, less, um, moralizing of pornography, pornography could have a neutral or, you know, even positive effect. Potentially it's, it's very different dishes that you're cooking with. That's not to say anything necessarily about the moral nature of the salt or the pornography. That's just to talk about its effect within a particular context. Does
1: that make sense? No, for sure. And I mean, truffle salt is objectively, you know, morally a, a good thing, uh, which I absolutely love. I'm glad you got uh, my point there. Yeah, I I'm did. Glad. That's right. The, the, it's about the salt. We are salt of the earth. Uh, I uh, no, but it's a great, you're right. Cause like, what is your goal? And like, what is the, measure? and even how we met, like, that's a great question. Cause what is a good marriage? You could ask, mm-hmm. but there, I'm sure there's some shared criteria, but some people might view sexual satisfaction and peace as a good marriage. Uh, some people might view like, uh, collaboration and professional synergy as a good marriage. I mean, there's, that's a, it that brings up a whole can of worms. So I guess to, just to put the, to close the loop on that, I'm curious in, in your practice, just as one clinician, et cetera, uh, dealing with people from, you know, both secular and Christian and different backgrounds, independent of the whole moral thing. Uh, do you, uh, as a Christian, I'm sorry, as a psychotherapist, just a clinician in general, have you found generally speaking, any sort of, uh, uh, position on pornography that you'd say, Hey, you know, generally it's not great, or uh, it's just too individual to actually make any sort of broad sweeping statement like that. Um,
0: I think with kids, I I put my foot down that it's harmful. And so I think that like when I have, especially prepubescent children, like the, the the literature is universally has a negative effect, It, it can speed up, um, puberty. It can actually change the hormonal structures of kids and how they're developing. Um, Speed up puberty development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kids can go into puberty earlier with premature sexual experience, and that includes pornography. Um, that would be chronic exposure. Yeah, not just like one (laughs) sex scene in a movie or something, but like you know, there's a yeah, there's there's a literature that's that's just established um, firmly that it's it's negative for children. But uh, as far as like even how it impacts teenagers, how it impacts adults, I I don't as a clinician, I'm not again imposing that moral framework on people. Um, I think that I'm going to work with the framework that people come in because I think my job as a clinician isn't to tell people what I think is right it's it's to leverage the psychological tools that I have to help them move towards their version of well-being and there's limitations on that if their version of well-being was like murdering people like I wouldn't help them (laughs) murder people but like you know so there's there's bounds but like generally at least that's that's the that's the job the job of being a psychotherapist isn't is very different than being a pastor, for example, in and in, in a sure. as a pastoral counselor, I'm guarding doctrine. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm indoctrinating in, in the sense of, you know, showing people the right way to go and, and raising the alarm of the wrong way to go. But in psychotherapy, um, I'm helping the person understand to become congruent with their own set of values. And oftentimes no. the psychopathology is because someone has, um, incongruency in what they think on something and it's
1: creating all sorts of issues does that make sense no it's so, all and I, I really appreciate it. that's a good distinction because i think it can be i think sometimes people forget like or they think their therapist is judging or whatever and I, I really appreciate that like you you know you're looking at like how do i just help this individual and divorcing whatever presupposed opinions you have uh it's just about you know what they it's what they bring to the table And i think that's good because i think a lot of people probably don't get help um they might assume that they're getting judged or whatnot and i think it's cool to hear a clinician say no like this i'm just i'm here to work with mm-hmm. what you bring me and i think that's uh, that's really cool so um mm-hmm. well speaking of uh as we wrap up our time here speaking of um mental health and anxiety and all man we we got into a that's what i love about this we we went somewhere i never would have imagined uh it's his fault yeah. he said the m word first and <laughs> they just opened up the can of worms here um, Sorry, but, did, is that going to get you demonetized on YouTube? You say no, no, version? no, just one episode. That's great. It you no, know, it's fantastic. No, this is these are conversations that need to happen. You like, to put I, the little
0: e next to the next to the thing. Is yeah, that is they, it explicit? Just to talk about that makes me almost angry. Well,
1: it'd be funny because there are certainly there are music videos that I think constitute far more explicit uh, than anything <laughs> we've discussed here. Also, we've used words like clinical research, you know, consensus. Yeah. Like we're we're not being crude. Yeah, yeah, we're just having yeah. fun here. Uh, so, all right, let's get some questions here. We have, we asked a few people just because you're obviously internet celebrity and sensation gracing us with your <laughs> presence here, which is fantastic. Um, I guess one question I got, it's half serious, it looks like, but it is, leads me to a real question. <laughs> um, what coping mechanisms do you recommend for me dealing with the inordinately high gas prices? <laughs> uh, which, I mean, all right, so Joking aside, that is, that is a real thing, but, uh, yeah. what, um, yeah. What do you recommend for people right now who are just, you know, just going, man, the, the world seems, it seemed bonkers a year ago. Mm-hmm. just, just when COVID started to die down and so normalcy came back, Russia invades, Ukraine gas mm-hmm. prices are through the roof. Oh wait, um, inflation's happening. I guess we're not done with things to worry about. Yeah.
0: Well, I would say react to the catastrophes that are happening and wait to react to the catastrophes in the future until they get here. And, and what I mean by that is we can go down the you know, rabbit trail of, well, what happens if World War III starts? Like what happens if you know, the, the housing market crashes? What happens if I lose my job? What happens? If, and, and then what happens is we react to the catastrophe before it gets here and experience all the physiological and psychological distress that that would bring like ahead of time it's uh yeah it's like the opposite of a credit card you get to pay before you buy anything (laughs) it's like it's and so i would just say like go to the you know to use that analogy go with the cash system like when the catastrophe is here pay pay with the distress like experience the distress when it gets here and that's not saying don't have forethought and be wise but you know there's there's so little that we can predict in this environment politically economically um, that I don't know, and, and this might just be me being naive, but I don't know if, if there's any reasonable or logical steps that you can take in light of Ukraine and Russia, like on a, <laughs> outside of putting some extra money in your savings account. And I don't know, like, don't like, you could think like, Oh, I just need to go buy a bunch more Bitcoin or buy gold or, you know, load up on gasoline tanks. Like I saw a TikTok of some lady, like filling up trash bags of gasoline, just like i don't oh, know where she's gonna put it i guess in her shed trash like, bags of gasoline. trash bags not buckets Wait, trash li- bags. liquid
1: in cash bags liquid in bag yep i don't that, know you know what and that lady probably has more tiktok followers than i do <laughs> <laughs> well so i don't know that that's so in in short it's don't yeah, do that it's, folks it's
0: it's, uh, it's make the next right choice make Damn. the next choice that you feel like is wise um of course. Yeah. Be having like financially, of course, like be putting an emergency fund together where if something catastrophic goes down, you're not getting evicted next month, but, um,
1: yeah, as far as gas prices, I'm, I'm wait, I'm trying to wade my way through that. Just like you guys are. Well, you're I'm here in California where you've, uh, you've I don't know if you're uh, sort of Joby porcel- your, your ears have heard, but your eyes have not seen the $7 per gallon, so. <laughs> So I was in Texas yeah, a couple weeks real. ago and this guy was like, man, this is BS. And I was like, "What?" Well, he's like gas was like, he's like, this is 395. This is terrible. And I was like 395. I don't remember the last time I saw gas for 395 anywhere. This is, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, it's, but, uh, oh, no, it's, man. it's, re- it's a real I saw, thing. I saw East coast getting up
0: close to 10 in some places, at least for short amounts of time. That was nuts. Oh Oh
1: man. Um, all right. Next question we got is, uh, oh, I, I hinted at this earlier, but, uh, your hair care regimen. You look fantastic. You also <laughs> lost weight. You look great. I don't know what you're Thanks. doing. Most Thank people you. have kids and it seems that they insulate, you know? Yeah. I went uh, the you... opposite direction. Yeah. I got you're... rid of my dad bod. Yeah. You, yeah. you became a dad, but shedded the bod, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. what's your hair care? And then how, how do you look so great? Uh, hair care. I am married to a hairdresser.
0: So that That's helps. Cool. Okay.
1: All right, folks. That's how it looks so good.
0: It's okay. the cheat code. Um, yep. so I have, I have in-house <laughs> haircuts in-house whatever hair I care. want
1: universal <laughs> hair care case.
0: yeah I've, I've had professional uh consultant um for my hair yeah so that that's an advantage for sure uh i use the daveness what's it called um not the pomade the dominus clay i think that's what it's called is the show notes yeah <laughs> and then the clay yeah i think it's the clay it's it's great it's uh it's what harry styles uses by the way that's what i heard I don't don't know if that can be confirmed, but Harry Styles uses uses that as well. Well, So if you want the hair of Harry Styles and or Matthias Barker, it's the Dominista sponsored by, no, it's not
1: sponsored. Hey, I'll call Harry right now and be like, Harold, this is Harold (laughs) Styles. I'd like to speak with you. Um, (laughs) Next question. What advice do you have for creators? Uh, You grew pretty quickly. This person wants to know, um, what advice do you have for creators just starting their channels and putting their content out there? I know you mm. probably get this a, a lot, but uh, it's a good question. You know, yeah. um,
0: so some quick pieces that I'm going to try not to make them sound like platitudes, but um, the first one is, is it's great content that you would be fine making if you never got paid for it. And if you never got famous for it, and that's kind of defeating the point of the question, I guess, but um, that's, that's not just so that you won't get let down it's it'll actually change the quality of your content because then you'll be making stuff that you genuinely feel creatively free to like make what you find is interesting and that you and that you like and then the market will assign value to that or not um i guess so like there's two there's two routes you can take you can try to predict the market once and then become that or you can be a really rich and quality version of what you are and then the market will define that valuable or not um, that's the crude options And then there's something in the middle where you do something authentic and then you're being strategic and you're looking for the best way to present that to people where the market can appreciate it. Um, whether that market is like an algorithm, whether you're starting a business, whether you're artistic, whether you're a musician, whatever that's, that's, those are the only options is like, do something that you like and that you enjoy. Um, or, you know, kind of anxiously try to predict what's next in the algorithm. Like Casey Neistat once he's a YouTuber, um, made this analogy that I liked and he's just like, uh, yeah, it's, it's like there's a spotlight going around on um, of like the public eye, and it's always moving. And you can be running after the spotlight, or you can be getting ready so that when the spotlight comes towards you, if it does, you're like, you're set and you're established in its quality. And so would you rather be anxiously running after the spotlight and then trying to build something once the spotlight is on you temporarily? Or would you rather be like doubling down on your stuff and really making it quality so that when the spotlight hits, you have content. And Hmm. on a practical note, um, I think it's actually advantageous to have a good nine months where you don't get much attention at all, because it'll allow you to experiment. It'll allow you to make different things and to try and to fail and not feel like, I don't know, any great amount of discouragement from that or humiliation from that. And then if you do, you know, maybe get like a break, you get shared by a big creator, you get an opportunity to do something, the algorithm starts picking up your stuff or whatever. You have a whole library worth of content, so that people can build a connection with you and build a relationship with you. And, those, and that's the kind of relationship you want with any prospective audience or customer is you don't want them just to like, I don't know, like your video. You want them to actually genuinely engage with the thing that you're making that hopefully makes the world better, whether it's your art, your music, um, your ideas, whatever. And so I would say, pick something that you're fine, getting no engagement with for a year and then post as frequently as, as you are able um, that thing at the quality that you feel good about. And then, um, after a year, potentially start to look around and be like, is there ways that I can shift and arrange this? That would be maybe more presentable. Cause maybe, maybe it's not that your art sucks. Maybe you just have a terrible camera and, <laughs> and like your lighting sucks. And, and you if you just change your lighting, out. you know, we'll a-
1: Matthias's notes, by the way, folks, I know everyone always asks, how does he do his lighting? Why does he look like he's in like a seventies film, you <laughs> know, with the cool dim lighting and stuff. So. yeah i don't know like
0: little stuff like that can have a big can have a big difference but no amount of lighting is actually going to turn your content from good (laughs) or bad to good um but that doesn't mean it's insignificant i don't know i hope that makes sense but no those are some loose thoughts for creators do something thank you yeah
1: we're, uh, so as I know, as we got Matthias, we, he has bigger and more important, um, people to meet Harry styles, you know, you know so we, we <laughs> I mean, I and mean, Harry have a, have a hairstyling appointment. Dude, that would be great. Hair styled by my Matthias. So two last rapid fire questions. Cause we gotta get you out of here. Um, first off, uh, do you have a, a must read book that you're just top of mind? You're like, oh my gosh, read this. It's amazing. I'm looking around any mice, any mice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no i'm looking around for a book um i don't know i've been getting into uh i just picked up a book that i think is interesting i don't know if i should recommend it yet but i but i am
1: interested all right, what it's are you enjoying the, then yeah what are you the 48 enjoying? laws of power um, oh dude by, that book is name? robert green yeah robert green dude, cool book dude all right well fat we'll have to well, we're gonna have you back on to discuss this book <laughs> that book I read that in college and it freaked me out because it's it's fascinating case studies of yeah. people who employ these uh tactics but I left reading that book so cynical about the human condition <laughs> and felt like yeah. this book can only be consumed if you have the guardrails of a mm. strong moral framework because yeah out of well, the what's cool months, is
0: he just he just shares Robert Greene he just shares like here's how people manipulate other people yeah. Um, not even necessarily deceitfully. Some of them are, but some of them are just, here's how people gain power over others. Here's just patterns. And it's not even that he's recommending that you use them. Right. He's just like, you should just be aware of them so that when you see your boss doing one of them, you know, that's what he's doing. It's like, it's just good education
1: to know, like, these are the laws by which people manipulate power.
0: And, oh no, uh, man,
1: it's the ring of Mordor. I think you start reading that book and you start going, we shall harness this power to defeat <laughs> yeah, evil. That's, <laughs> all
0: right. That's where a lot of people criticize it. And and I was worried at first, I'm like, is this some just weird, like Marxian thing? And he's like, no, it's not that at all. It's, it's, it's just like.
1: Cut to Matthias three years later, as he sits on his throne, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah. Ryan, welcome back to my podcast. So yeah, I have leveraged
0: all 48 laws of All power. the hair
1: care is mine. Um. No. And then, um, what are you working on right now? So we have, you have, we have, we can connect with Matthias in so many ways. You've got mm. your incredible Instagram, which I do have to give you a shout out. I told you this, but I wanted listeners to hear this, uh, dear friend of mine had a terrible, uh, family tragedy and your video on grief, mm. um, in particular with moms, uh, just hit yeah. it on the head and he made sure to pull me aside be like, tell that guy, he just mm. really helped me. So, oh, so as a content creator, you need to hear stuff like that. So, just no, know your so work warm. is Thank impacting you. many, many people.
0: Wow. Um, Thank you. That's so good.
1: So you can check out Matthias's Instagram if you're, she's been living in Fraggle Rock uh, and have not been able to. My older listeners will get that reference. Uh, <laughs> you, can, uh, you can check out his stuff, but he's also got a podcast, which is doing yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. I know because I have clients who advertise on it. So, and yeah, had a great experience. So you should run ads on it guys. It's fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah, Canopy's great. Shout out to Canopy. I like him a lot. I am, um, yeah, the podcast has been fun. I've, I've just kind of launched season two, um, March 1st. And so I've been busy recording lots of episodes and doing interviews. It's,
1: What's the elevator pitch? If So if I, for listeners right now who are like, I am so tired of Ryan talking, I would like Matthias <laughs> without Ryan. Uh, is that essentially <laughs> <to> the podcast? <laughs> give, us,
0: give I'm us so sick of, right. Yeah. Cause that's what everyone's thinking. Um, no, it's, uh, my, my tagline is moving towards what's meaningful despite hardship. And so it's a podcast on mental health. It's a podcast on lots of different topics in mental health. And, and it's also maybe a place where I share some philosophy and, and stuff that I wouldn't maybe outrightly discuss in like, um, like a therapy setting, kind of like what we're talking about. Cause in a therapy setting, I'd take a pretty neutral stance, but, but I make a case from a psychological point of view, from a few for a few different things. So, like, I had episodes on on why you should get married, like why is marriage a good idea. Um, so that, of course, imposes some value judgments. But I I took a psychological angle to it that I thought was interesting. I'm single, um, so I'm triggered by this, obviously. Yeah, so. yeah
1: <laughs> triggered. Trying um, Matthias, okay? <laughs> yeah, come on, try get married. No refer- um, Matthias has given zero referrals. So <laughs> yeah, no blind dates. But um, <laughs>
0: I uh, I talked about like why you should want to have kids, like why that's a good thing. I think. Mm. I don't know. So maybe responding to, um, yeah, I don't know, just some like things that I see a lot in, in the counseling office that, that are just maybe worth considering on a philosophical note. So it's a lot of psychological stuff. Some of it is, um, some of it is philosophy and then, uh, yeah, like I'm doing one, I've been working on one right before this podcast. I'll keep working on it after this on masculinity and three different expressions of masculinity from different psychological viewpoints. And so, That'll be fun and interesting. So yeah, that's my podcast. It's called the
1: Matthias J. Barker podcast. Yeah,
0: Matthias J. Barker podcast.
1: Guys, check check it out, and it's actually doing very very well. I know because the ad rates are not cheap because it's doing (laughs) awesome. So that's why you need to do it because it's amazing. Uh, anyways, Mm -hmm. Matthias, thank you so much. You are so smart and it is so fun. I find my lexicon increases with every syllable that you utter. Oh gosh. I feel so much smarter as a result of talking with you. And uh, I know that you blessed dozens of people around the world today by by tuning in. <laughs> uh, but you're uh, I, it's it's just uh, honor to know you and appreciate you um, beyond your hair. Just a great right. guy, and I love absolutely love, love the work you're doing. Not many people I can dive into Gottman and pornography uh and Robert Greene with. So, thanks for yeah, making. For making for the out. record, we did not dive
0: into pornography together today. That is not what <laughs> we did. For anyone listening, that is not what took place on the record. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Again, but he opposes you. no moral judgments though. Yeah. So, as a clinician, <laughs> he would just say as a viewer as a parent viewer discretion is advised (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, all right we'll send this episode to post and editing uh real quick there so Mm, be badly dubbed but uh, anyways guys we've been listening to matthias j barker on i went camping with check him out on all his social channels we'll post in there matthias thanks for camping next time we're going to talk about that brain scan.
0: yep love it would love to thanks ryan